Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Have you ever in your life been in uh, the, the wrong place at the right time? Meaning that you thought you were where you were supposed to be when you were supposed to be there, but then you realized uh, that you were totally not where you were supposed to be at all. Uh, I can think of a few times in my life uh, when that's happened. Sometimes the stakes being higher, uh, sometimes lower. I remember one particular time uh, on vacation with my parents as a young child, um, and my mother had said, we will be by this pool at, you know, this time, meet us there. And so uh, I came up to the pool that I thought was the pool where they said they were, and I saw a woman who I thought was my mother. They looked very similar from the rear side. And uh, she was sitting by the pool, and she had a Diet Coke sitting next to her, and I just went over, and I grabbed the Diet Coke, and I started drinking it. And much to my horror, this woman looked up and said, that's mine, you know. And then, you know, startled and, you know, suddenly realized in that moment that I was in the wrong place, (laughs) Uh, even though it was the right time. And you know, and that happens. I've had other times that I, I was tempted to share with you, but I'm just downright too embarrassed uh, when that's happened to me. But um, what we have tonight in John's Gospel, the third chapter, is we have a man, uh, a very great man, who finds himself in the wrong place, but not in a way where it doesn't mean much, but in, in a way where he realizes that he is in the wrong place in every area of his affluent life. Uh, spiritually, he thinks he's in the right place and he finds out he's in the wrong place. Vocationally, he thinks he's in the right place, he finds out he's in the wrong place. Mentally, he thinks he's in the right place, but he finds out that he's in the wrong place and it happens all in a moment and it happens all because of Jesus. Now, uh, the passage that this interaction comes from is a very famous passage in the Bible. If you have even just a small exposure to the Christian faith and teaching, or if you've only been in church for uh, a, a very short period of time, then you're probably familiar with this interaction, or at least with some of the concepts or verses that come out of this particular passage. The theme of it is this whole idea of being born again. And I know that when I even say those words, there's probably 50 different thoughts that are are represented by the different minds that are here as you hear me just say the words born again. And you have images of people, images of uh, 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 reputations and uh, of pictures and things and stereotypes and all that go through your mind when I even say that. But the idea of this born-again concept that the Bible teaches is really the foundation of what Orthodox Christianity is all about. This concept of being born again that we see here in this passage really serves as the dividing line between two sides of the Reformation, a very important thing. It's a concept that has been twisted, wrangled, manipulated in a thousand different ways to the point where some people don't even know what form of speech the two words actually are. Is it a noun? Is it something that you are? Is it a thing? I'm a born-againer, 
You know, is it a noun or is it an adjective? Is it something that describes a particular lifestyle? Like someone you find out that that person doesn't sleep around, that person doesn't use drugs, that person is an honest person, they must be a born again. They must be born again. It's a descriptive word. Is it an adjective or is it a verb? Is it something that actually happens to you? It's an event that takes place in your life. And so, you know, all of these different things surrounding this concept that's here in this chapter, and yet we also realize that this concept of being born again is the foundation of one of the most beautiful truths that God has given as a gift to mankind. And it's out of this passage the probably the most well-known and most famous verse that is known by humanity comes. It's John 3.16, that verse we could probably say by heart that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish. And the two things, John 3.16 and this idea of being born again are inseparably linked together. Now this whole theme centers around a conversation, an interaction that took place between Jesus and the man that we'll see in the passage, the man whose name is Nicodemus. And so as we turn our attention to the chapter, as we look at chapter 3, verse 1, we meet the man and we find out who we're dealing with here in this passage. It says there that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who was a ruler of the Jews. There are three words or three ways in which Nicodemus is identified or described to us here in this opening part of the passage. The first word, and I believe it's intentional, though it's easy to skip over, is where it simply says that there was a man. And the, real, the reason I, I believe that that's important and that it's intentionally phrased that way by God is because that's all Nicodemus is in the eyes of God. God sees no further than the fact that, that he's a man. In fact, when God looks at the sea of humanity, all he sees are men and women. He doesn't see any further than that. He doesn't see any titles. He doesn't see achievements. He doesn't see class or race or age or where you come from. He only sees what he made. He sees man and he sees woman. Now, if the description of him stopped right there, then the interaction would become very simple. It would also become very uninteresting and very non-dramatic, but it doesn't. Uh, John goes on to describe him not only as a man, but he also says that he is a Pharisee. Now, who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were an elite group of 6,000 Jewish men that were hand-selected that were more or less moral enforcement officers. Their job was to keep tabs on the behaviors of people and to keep them in check in such a way that the judgment of God would not fall upon the nation as it had in times past. And so these were the legalists. These were the ones that would sniff out behavioral patterns and watch what people were doing and would press charges on them and would protect the sanctity of their religious system. 
But in order to be a Pharisee, you had to be extremely educated, extremely intelligent, extremely dedicated to what it was that you did. And because you were a Pharisee, you were very decorated as an individual, meaning that you had degrees and achievements, and you were also revered and respected by the people. And so it was no small thing to be a Pharisee in those days. They were one of the groups that were held as heroes amongst the people. And it was a high ambition of a Jewish male to someday make that rank or to be included in that number of 6,000 men. But he wasn't just a Pharisee. It tells us that he was also a ruler of the Jews. And what that means is that not only was he a part of the 6,000 elite Pharisees, but he was also a part of the 70 elite members of Israeli government at that time that were known as the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin simply means the 70. And so what that meant is this man not only educated and decorated in the religious arena, but he was also steeped in national politics. He was also educated in a completely different vein, able to operate and function as a a leader there. It made him highly influential. It made him an important person. We read a little bit later on in the text, Jesus is going to identify Nicodemus in a third way. Uh, Kind of a reproof that he's going to give, and we'll see it when we get there. But Jesus calls him a master of Israel. And what that simply means is that he was a teacher that he was, in a sense, a rabbi himself. And that makes a third elite category that this man Nicodemus is a part of, is that he was a master, meaning that he was someone that was an influential teacher who had authority to interpret Scripture. And, And that was not something that just came to anyone. You couldn't just you know, claim authority. You had to be given that. It had the mantle of some rabbi had to fall upon you. And so this man, to sum it up, was a man of influence, a man of intelligence, of ability, of capacity, of affluence, no doubt very rich, and a man of great honor. And he had all of that with a personal sense, a a personal feeling on the inside that he was in the center of God's will and that he had God's favor on his life, and that he, had, he was in the middle of God's plan, and that he was being blessed by God because of the position of his life. And that's where he was at. But then in a moment, and it could have been a moment that happened over a series of weeks, or it could have happened in the very moment when Jesus overturned the tables in the temple, which happened right before this encounter. But in a moment, Nicodemus has an encounter with Jesus that is not yet face-to-face. But he sees the man, and he is in his company, and he recognizes the things that he's doing and the things that he's saying. And what he realizes is that there's something about this man that is divine. There's something about him that's beyond. There's something that I recognize, Nicodemus would say, in him that I I have not seen in the other authorities of Israel, the other Pharisees, the other Sanhedrin, the other rabbis. And what that does is it leads Nicodemus to do what he does in the next verse. Notice in verse 2. It says that the same, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night 
And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that has come from God, for no one can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. Now what that tells us there is that he came to Jesus because what he realized is that this man is something above and beyond anything I've ever seen before, and he's not playing in our sandbox. And what that did in Nicodemus's heart is that it made him realize in that moment that though I be successful and revered and rich and intelligent and decorated and all the rest of the things that I am, I might not be in the right place. I might think that I have all of that and that I'm in the center of God's will, but what I'm seeing, hearing, and perceiving from being around this man who is obviously sent from God, my check engine light is on. And there's something inside of me that I realize at the core is misaligned everything on the outside with what I'm supposed to be in my relationship with God on the inside. And he's troubled. And the trouble is so great that he says, I need to talk to that man about my spiritual condition and about where I'm at at the core of what I am. You know what is amazing to me about this man, Nicodemus? is that he has everything that humanity is striving after, and he has the inner sense that he has those things in the perfect will of God. But as soon as he realizes that he's not okay with God, all of those other things don't matter anymore, and he has to settle that thing that's wrong at the core. And I respect that about this man, because that's unique. Most people that have the level of success and affluence that Nicodemus has, they can divert themselves or distract themselves or they can distort the reality of what's going on inside themselves and they can find a way to bury that feeling in the experiences of all that they have and of all that they are. But with Nicodemus, it's not so. He says, it's not enough for me to be rich. It's not enough for me to be successful. It's not enough for me to be respected. If there's something wrong at the core, I want to know what it is and I want to deal with it. And so he doesn't dismiss it. He dives in and he comes to Jesus by night. Now, why did Nicodemus come to Jesus by night? Some would think that it's probably because he was fearful of what the other Pharisees would say. I think that's a given. I don't even think we have to say that. Absolutely. He wants to deal with things personally and he knows he can't have the distraction of his peers judging him and knowing that they're going to ask what happened in the interaction. I don't think it was motivated by fear. I think it was actually motivated by honesty, is that he knew he had to come to Jesus in a time where he could be absolutely real. I don't believe he was coming to Jesus testing him. And the reason I don't believe that is because the Pharisees had no problem testing Jesus out in the open in front of everybody. In fact, If Nicodemus was trying to score points with the Pharisees, that's the way he would have done it. He would have called Jesus out in the public square, but he doesn't do that. The reason is because he really wants to know who Jesus is and what it is that he has to say. And so he comes to Jesus and he gives him this question and he says to him remarkable words. He says that we know, now that's plural, we know. They might not admit it, They might not be here talking to you, though they should be, but we all know at this early point in your ministry, 
before things have even been established, before you even have one full-time disciple following you, we already know that you are a teacher come from God because no one can do the things that you do except God be with him. So now Jesus, perceiving what's going on in this man and desiring to give him an answer to the questions that he has in his heart, doesn't even wait for Nicodemus to continue, but he cuts right to the core, right to the chase, and he gives an answer in verse 3. It says that Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's where those words in the Bible are, Used. It's the first time, and really this chapter is the only time that those words are put in this particular way. Peter mentions it later. But other than that, this is it. Jesus says, listen, unless something happens to you, this thing called being born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I want to clarify something here at this point, and that is this. Is that when Jesus says that you cannot see the kingdom of God to Nicodemus... Nicodemus is not thinking about having an eternity in heaven with God. That's not what the Jewish people were looking for or waiting on in the days when Jesus was on the earth. They were expecting a Messiah, a Savior that was going to come and be like King David, who would reestablish the throne of Israel and, and set Israel over the nations of the world. They were looking for a physical kingdom. And so that was the context. And what Jesus is saying is that, listen, something has to happen to you to even give you the capacity to see the kingdom when it comes. Jesus is giving to Nicodemus the clue that what he's looking for and what he's expecting is different from what the Messiah is actually coming to usher in and that he doesn't even have the ability to recognize him or his kingdom unless he's born again. Now, I'm so thankful that Nicodemus didn't understand what Jesus was talking about because it meant that Jesus would go on to explain it. Nicodemus asks the question in verse 4. He said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, right there, it proves that Nicodemus has no idea what Jesus is talking about because he's looking at things purely from a physical perspective. What? Born again? Are you kidding? Are you out of your mind? Now, I don't think he's being sarcastic. He's not being snide and snippy with Jesus. I think he really literally didn't understand what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus answers the concern in verse 5, and he explains what he means. Notice. It says that Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. Now, the water that Jesus is referring to is physical birth. We know that because he's going to tell us that when we get to verse 6. So he's saying to Nicodemus, essentially, that there is a physical birth that is tangible, the kind that you're talking about when you say, can a man enter the second time? But then there's also a second birth that you know nothing about, and that is a spiritual birth. Unless a man is born physically and also born spiritually, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And he explains further. 
that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, we're the offspring of physical parents, and thus we're birthed with a nature and a capacity that's been handed to us by our parents, those that birthed us. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you that you must be born again. Now listen, when a human being is born physically, we are inherently predisposed to an inherited nature and also we are in a physical environment. In other words, I bear the, capa- or the, um, the traits of my parents. I am my nationality, I have my culture, I have my issues, <laughs> things, and I have also the good things in my life and a lot of that handed to me By the gene pool, the physical things, the nature that I have is the result of the fact that I'm their offspring. I'm also born into this world, and so I relate to it through the physical mediums of my body and physical matter. There's an environment that I'm in. But what Jesus is saying is that if a person is going to see the kingdom of God, then they must be born a second time and in an entirely different way. And in this birth, the second birth, the birthing parent is the Spirit of God. In other words, something is going to happen in my life where I am going to become the offspring, not only of physical parents, but I'm going to become the very offspring of the Spirit of God doing something in my life. Now, what that means is that I am going to, if I'm born again, I'm going to be given a new nature. Just as I inherited a fallen nature, a reflection of my parents, I'm also going to reflect and be given the nature of the birthing parent of the Holy Spirit if I'm born again. So I'm going to be given a brand new nature if I'm born again. And this is probably the more important part for our context. I'm also going to be given a brand new capacity. Meaning that if physical parents yielded to me the physical components that I needed to relate with the physical world, then when I'm born of the Spirit, the Spirit is going to birth in me the capacity to understand and perceive spiritual things. Now, where Jesus is going with this is that unless that happens to you, then you don't have the capacity or the faculties to even see the kingdom, understand who the Messiah is, or have any interaction with that kingdom at all. You don't have the capacity. You haven't been born again. And so Jesus is saying that the act of being born again is something that happens to a human being that then enables them to comprehend the Christ and the kingdom that that Christ resides over. Now he gives a small illustration of this in verse 8. Notice what he says. He says, the wind blows where it lists or wherever it wants, wherever it blows. And you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell from where it comes or where it's going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. What he's saying essentially to Nicodemus in this illustration is he's saying you don't have the faculties to experience the kingdom that you're looking for because it's a different kind of king that rules over it and there's a different 
kind of kingdom. And you have to have the faculties given to you by the Holy Spirit in order to perceive it, just like the wind. You can hear it. You can feel its effects. You can describe it, but you can't see it and you can't control it and you can't understand it because you don't have the capacity to do it. It's an unseen thing. That's why Jesus would say in Luke chapter 17, verse 20, he would say that the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Notice there, the Pharisees demanded, when will the kingdom come? And Jesus said, it's not a kingdom that you can see. He would say in John chapter 18, verse 36, when Pilate was charging Jesus saying, are you a king? Where's your kingdom? And Jesus would say to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not a physical kingdom. It's not a land. It doesn't have borders that you would understand. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the apostle Paul describes it this way. He says that the natural man, that is the physical me, receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Listen, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, if I'm not born again, it is impossible for me to see Jesus for who he is or to see his kingdom because I don't have the equipment, I don't have the hardware to interpret that software. And thus I must be born again. Jesus says that this event And this is all conclusive. It's a verb. Born again is a verb. It's something that happens to you. That it has to happen to you in order for you to see Jesus and in order for you to see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus asks another question here in verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? I'm glad he asked that question. How does this work? Because that's probably the question that most of us have right now is, okay, you're talking about a spiritual birth, How does that take place in a a person's life? How is a person born again? That's the question. And so Jesus answers it in verse 10. It says that Jesus answered and said unto him, first, are you a a master of Israel and you know not these things? A little kind of jab right there. You know, hey, aren't you a rabbi? Aren't you part of the elite, the ones who know it all, the authorities? And you don't know the simplicity of the very kingdom that you're supposedly a teacher over? He says, truly, and there's a reason why he gives him that reproof. We'll see it here. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, listen, we speak that we do know. In other words, we speak what we know about and we testify of what we have seen, but you receive not our witness. In other words, the authority of a teacher is is not in what they read somewhere else and they simply regurgitate to you. The authority of a teacher is when they really know what it is that they're teaching, what their substance is. The authority of a witness is when they actually were a witness of the events that they're testifying concerning. If I haven't really seen something and I try to communicate to you what I didn't really see, you can see right through what I'm saying because it's not real in my life. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, our place as rabbis and teachers, Jesus talking to Nicodemus man to man, is that we testify of the things that we have authority of because they're real in our life. And that's important. Here's why. 
Because Jesus says, if I have told you earthly things and you don't even believe me, then how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, I can speak these things with authority because I have seen and I know what I'm talking about in this. And you have no clue. You don't even have the capacity. But in this, Jesus brings up the the, the roadblock that's keeping Nicodemus back. He uses the word twice in the passage we just read. It's that little word, believe. Do you see it there? He says, I have told you earthly things and you believe not. How will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Listen, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here is if you want to understand what it means to be born again, And if you want to experience what it is to be born again, it's going to come from an unexpected source. Because essentially, you're going to have to evaluate something that you can't see with your physical eyes that you hear from someone you don't even know. You're going to have to give me, Jesus is saying, the benefit of the doubt long enough and deep enough that you'll receive the testimony that I'm giving to you, even though it doesn't make sense to you yet because you don't even have the capacity to understand it. And thus, it's going to have to come down to faith to some degree because you can't see what I'm talking about and there's no way for you to know about it before it happens to you. You're going to have to trust me. Now, this is the stumbling block, isn't it? I remember when when Georgia gave her life to Christ, we were not married, we were dating. We dated for two years, and she was the most amazing person I'd ever met in my entire life. And I was the most amazing person that she had ever met in her entire life because I was a con artist, (laughs) you know. But, but, what, but we had such a good relationship, and, and we were together for two years, and we just knew that this was a forever type of relationship. But then she met someone better than me, Jesus. And, and when she met Jesus, I had competition. And, and I was a little bit put off by that, you know, because there was this other man in her life now uh, that she was devoted to that she wanted to put even before me. And, and, and so there was this rift that I felt. And and that was not the track or trajectory that I was on. I didn't want to go there with my life at all. And so we broke up. I broke up with her because I didn't want to go that way. I didn't want to be that. I didn't want to do that. And and I really was out of my mind, you know, in a lot of ways. And then I was really out of my mind after that, you know, for a while. But, But the stumbling block that I had was how is it, and this was what bothered me. I couldn't put this down is that how is it that you could trade something so good as the relationship we had for something that you can't even see? Something that you can't even know for sure if it's real. And for me, that was a valid point that I was making because I couldn't see it and I couldn't feel it. So for me, it was a concept. And she traded a real tangible relationship that was good, healthy, for something that maybe could be possibly you know and so then I went to church with her and and so what happened is that even if in my heart and in my mind I knew there was more to life than the here and now 
I, I was fairly convinced the answer wasn't in that 100-year-old building that smelled like a funeral home, full of people that kind of were checking in a little early. You know, the, I, I kind of knew that this isn't probably where the meaning of life is going to be found. And, and really, the big stumbling block, the wall that kept me from experiencing Jesus was that if it was ever going to happen, I was going to have to open my heart to something I couldn't see and something that I couldn't understand. And that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here, is that if you're going to understand this, then you're going to have to take what you've seen of me that's intriguing you, and it's going to have to translate into faith where you'll believe my words and receive my testimony about how this is going to take place in your life. He says it's going to come from an unexpected source. Then it's going to happen, Jesus goes on, in an unexpected way. Notice in verse 14. He says that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him, there's that issue of faith again, should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, in order to, again, answer the question of how does this work? How is a person born again? Jesus reaches back into the Old Testament and he pulls out this little obscure event that happened in the days of Moses. The people had been murmuring against God, complaining about the conditions in the wilderness. And in that murmuring, Venomous snakes infiltrated the camp and bit many of the people, and they were dying. They were poisoned. They were languishing because of this. And Moses took the problem to the Lord, and he said, Lord, the people are dying. There's a disease. What do we do in the camp? And the Lord said, I want you to take a bronze serpent. Take some brass, forge a serpent, put it on a pole, and I want you in the middle of the camp to raise this bronze serpent up in the visible path of every citizen of Israel, everyone in the camp, and tell the people when they're bitten, if they're bitten, to look in the direction of this serpent, and when they look, they shall be healed. When the curse is lifted up, healing of the venom is going to come. And Jesus says, just like Moses lifted up the serpent so must the Son of Man be lifted up, a reference to what would come when Jesus would hang upon the cross. That whosoever would not just look in the direction, because we can't physically see the cross, but if we would believe that what God did in sending His Son and nailing Him to the cross, if we would put our faith in what God did, that we could then be born again. And here's the stumbling block, stumbling block number two. Not only is it going to come from an unexpected source, but it comes in an unexpected way. Why? Because there's no logical link between looking at a serpent on a pole and being physically healed, just like there's no logical link between me believing in a historical event And now I can be born again. I can become the offspring of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't make sense. It short circuits the intellect. There's no connection. There's no scientific play-by-play that you can 
string it together and say, oh, I see when you turn your neck, it releases this endorphin and it moves through the body in just that right way. Now, you, no, it doesn't work like that. Look at the serpent on the pole, <laughs> healed. <laughs> you say, how does that work? You know how it works? God makes it work because God said that's the way that it's going to work and God is God. How can a man be born again? Just like Moses lifted up the serpent, whosoever believes in the Son of Man being lifted up for the sin of the world, whoso puts his faith in that will be born again. It comes in an unexpected way. It works because of an unexpected why. Look at verse 16. It's the most famous verse in the Bible. You probably don't even have to look down. Why does it work? Why did God do this? Why is this the way? Here's why. For God so loved the world, that's his motive, that he gave his only begotten son, that was his mode or method, that whoso believes in him, that's our part, should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the material, that's the reward. God gives us salvation because he loved us enough that he would send his own son into the world that he would bear the punishment for our sin so that we could be saved. Well, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? I mean, is it something where I just, okay, I believe. I read it in a textbook. Okay, this man claimed to be. Supposedly he was sinless. I can ascribe mentally to those things, and I can speak the words. But what does it really mean to believe in Jesus? If I'm going to be born again and this is the way it happens, how do I do it? I want you to notice verse 18 because Jesus gives us the answer here. He says, he that believes, and I need you to see this. If you're not reading a King James tonight, listen, I tried to change. You guys, some of you said I saw the gold on your Bible last week. I did New King James one time. I'm back. I, I, I repent. I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> no, really, I... I'm going to keep trying. I I don't have a problem with other translations, but you'll see it right here. Look on the screen. It's King James. Notice it says, he that believeth, what's that next word? Do you see that? Say it loud. He that believeth on him. You say, wait, wait, wait. No, we don't believe on someone. We believe in someone. This is bad grammar. This is bad King's English. No, 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 no. That's intentional. It says, he that believes on on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son, or of the only begotten Son of God. What does it mean to believe on Jesus? Here's what it means. It means that when I am coming to him in faith so that I can be born again, what I am doing is I am taking the contents of my entire life my whole being, everything I was, everything I am, everything I ever will be, all of the good, all of the indifferent, and listen, and all of the bad, that means all of my sin, everything that I inherited because of the fall in my sinful nature, including the sinful deeds that I have done, all of what I am is being placed on him. As he is lifted up, the son of God, sinless and perfect, holy, as he is being tortured and nailed to a cross, everything that I 
am in my fallen nature is being placed on him as I choose to believe that he died for me. And thus I'm believing on him, confessing that I can't save myself, that I'm not good enough myself. And I'm giving him the responsibility to answer for my sins and to take the punishment for my sins when he is lifted up upon the cross. And so for me to acknowledge the fact that I'm fallen and then to trust him as the only one who could earn heaven and now he's going to give me the righteousness that he possesses as a gift because he loves me. That's what it means to believe on him. It means that I'm confessing that I need a savior because I can't save myself. And I'm willing to put my full trust on him to be the one who paid the price and now gifts me this gift of being born again. And he says that he that believes on him is not condemned, but watch this, he that believes not is condemned already. Now, those words reverberated in the mind of Nicodemus. Why? Because Nicodemus thinks he's okay with God. And what he's being told is that if you're not born again, then you're not okay with God. If belief translates to born again, which translates the capacity that Nicodemus doesn't have, work it backwards. Nicodemus is a smart man. He realizes what Jesus is saying here. That you're condemned already. You're not in a position where you're right with God. Because you haven't believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. And this is where it comes to a close and where it means something to us. He says that light is come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that does truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested that they are wrought in God. Now, listen, as we just look at these verses quickly. The coming of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, divided humanity into two separate camps. Those that are in darkness, as he says here, and those that are in light. Prior to his coming, there was only one class, those that were in darkness, because there was nothing to believe. But when Jesus came into the world, now there's a choice. There's two camps. There's darkness and there's light. And he says that the camp that stays in darkness stays in darkness because their deeds are, the word he uses is evil, and they don't want their deeds to be exposed for what they are. Now, when he uses the word evil, what he's saying there is that their deeds, their drive, what they do with their life is born out of the old fallen nature, meaning that everything we do in our physical existence is motivated in some way by self. Now, I know that some of you say, oh, come on, that's not true. No, 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 it is. If you trace it back to its roots, what we do and what we're proud of about ourselves is motivated by the deeds of the old man. Now, when we step into the light, like Nicodemus is kind of doing here, right? He's coming to Jesus and saying, hey, I I, I realize something's not right on the inside. He steps into the light. All of a sudden now, 
The light of the world exposes the motives and the reasons why I do what I do. Oh, maybe it isn't so much because I love God. Maybe it's because I love the fact that people like the fact that I like God and I'm doing it for the honor that I receive. Oh, I don't want to, no, 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 I'm doing this for God. This is all for God. You know, and all of a sudden, what does Jesus say? He uses the word reproved. I like that word. That's King James word. It's a good word. Here's why. Because that's what happens when we get in the light. When we get in the light, God doesn't say, see, you're a sinner. God already knew we were a sinner. He's gentle. He doesn't do that. But what happens when we come into the light is that the motives behind our actions are revealed. And thus they are reproved. Oh, is that really why you're serving God the way you are? Because you're such a benevolent and selfless person. Or... Are you motivated in some way because of what you get out of it, something that's in it for you? And in the light, why we do what we do is exposed. This is what's happening to Nicodemus right now. Why am I a Pharisee? Why am I a ruler of the Jews? Why am I a teacher of Israel? What I'm realizing when I come into the light is that I know so little, I don't even know what I don't know. I'm a completely lost person, and I'm doing this completely for me, for selfish means. I'm not where I thought I was, and I'm certainly not right with God, even though for all these years I thought I was being a religious person. And that's what brings us to the great ultimatum. Here's the great ultimatum, is that you and I are faced with this choice. Will we stay in darkness, or will we step into the light? There are two types of people that are faced with this choice, and only two. And then there's a sliding scale that kind of goes left and right of this center spot. Two types of people have to make this decision. Do I want to stay in darkness or get in the light? On one end of the spectrum, you have those that their lives are complete shipwreck, a complete waste. They've ruined their entire life. They've fallen into things that have stripped them completely bare. They're the outcasts of society. They end up on the fringes and a lot of times in jail or in rehab or at an early death. Those are the ruined people. On the other end of this sliding spectrum are the people like Nicodemus. And I'm really glad God chose Nicodemus to have this interaction. He's going to have an interaction with the other side next time. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. But today, Nicodemus. Nicodemus has to make the same decision. Only the position that Nicodemus is in is that he, his life is affluent, successful, respected, honored. All men speak well of him but he's still in darkness. And can you see how it's exceedingly more difficult for someone on this end of the spectrum to make the decision to step into the light than someone on this end of the spectrum? That's why Jesus would say, I think it's Matthew 21, verse 31, he would say that the harlots, the prostitutes, and the tax collectors are entering the kingdom of God before the scribes and the Pharisees. Because it's a lot easier to make the decision like, oh, Jesus died for me? You mean I wrecked my life and Jesus will save me? Oh, I'm, I'm in. Save me. Lord, uh, thank you for saving my life, you know. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, what did Jesus say? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because they're more apt to receive the gift of salvation. They've got nothing to bring. Jesus would say, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to squeeze through the eye of the needle. Why? Because they have so much that they might have to give up so much 
for them to step in, but not so much for the person who's got absolutely nothing. See, it's real easy for the person who's wrecked their life. But for the Nicodemus, for the person who's trusting in their religious accomplishments, their morality, their discipline, their devotion, their attendance, their pride, their boast before God, for that person to come face to face with the Son of God and for him to say, not only do you have to recognize that all that you are and all that you have done is not good enough, but in believing on me, you also have to ask the question, what is it going to cost you in order to make this step of faith to believe? What is it worth to you? And so I ask you here tonight as we close, what is it that you are holding on to? And what side of that spectrum do you find yourself on? Are you the person here that sits here tonight and you say, you know what, I've made a total mess of my life. I've wrecked it in every way, shape, and form. I don't feel like I'm where I'm supposed to be mentally. I don't feel like I'm where I'm supposed to be physically. And spiritually, I don't know who God is. I know there's got to be more to life than this, but I know nothing of where I am right now. What my word to you is tonight is that Jesus Christ died for you. And right now, he extends to you the gift of eternal life and salvation. A new start, a clean conscience, a new nature. Wherein wherein on the inside, he begins to make you what you can never make yourself. And he gives you eternal life. And it's yours for the taking if you make the choice to believe on something that comes from an unexpected source that you hear from someone who you don't know from Adam. Maybe you're on the other side of that spectrum. Where you have so much. Seems like... God has blessed your life, but you've never put your faith in Jesus. You have a sense of morality. You have a sense as though, you know, well, I must be okay. But if you're quiet long enough, you know that at the core of who you are, you're in a prison of the things that you're prideful about. You're wearing the titles that have been put upon you as a badge of honor, not realizing that those very things are a prison that are keeping you from God And they're keeping you from what God wants to do and can do in your life if you would give your life completely to him. The message to the one and the messages to the other, exactly the same. And the question is, is it worth it for me to believe on Jesus to be born again, to receive the gift of salvation, to have a new start, a clear conscience, a new nature that does in me what I could never do for myself and the gift of eternal life? Or do I want to hold on to what I have right now? I think one of the most respectable figures in the entire Bible has got to be Moses. Because we're told of Moses that when he came to the age of 40, he was living in affluence and respect and comfort. He was in the Pharaoh's palace and he had the best life of anybody in the world. But at the age of 40, he had a Nicodemus moment where he realized, you know what, I have everything I want in life, but there's something that's not right on the inside. He looked at the color of his skin. It was a little bit darker than everyone else's. He looked in the mirror, and he saw the shape of his nose. And he said, I'm not one of them. I'm one of them. 
And it says in Hebrews chapter 11, concerning the man Moses and the faith that he had, it said that by faith Moses forsook Egypt when he came to years and he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Come on, put it up there. Don't make me look bad, Jamie. Thank you. Next verse, please. Verse 25. Thank you. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, what it would cost to give my life to Christ to be greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto the repayment or the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured seeing him who is invisible. Is that it? Thank you. Moses is a lot like Nicodemus, isn't he? Had a lot to give up. But for him he said, I can't, in trueness to myself, continue lying to myself and thinking that everything's okay when I know deep inside something really isn't. And he was willing to give up everything that he had going for him for what he knew he could receive in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the decision. That's the choice that every human being is faced with. Would you all stand with me? I want to give you an opportunity tonight as we close our service to believe on Jesus Christ. See, the problem in this whole thing is that you can wait a real long time to make that decision. That's what Nicodemus did. We see him twice more in the Gospel of John, and it's inconclusive as to whether or not he ever actually did put his faith in Jesus. You can wait for a long time. But the bottom line is that you must be born again. Our sins have separated us from God, and Jesus paid the price. He redeemed us from those sins upon the cross. But by us, it requires faith. We can't understand it until it happens, and we won't have the capacity to understand it until we receive it. But I ask you this morning, just the quietness of your heart, maybe even just to close your eyes, it's just you and God here in this moment. And I ask you this question, do you know deep down at the core that something isn't right? That somewhere your life is out of alignment with God, and yet it needs to be right? Listen, the reason why you feel like that, it's not because you're in the wrong job, It's not because there's something wrong with your kids or your family life or the decisions that you made in the past. The reason is because you are incomplete. And what you were made for and what God wants to do in your life is that he wants to put his spirit inside of you and complete you. And I ask you tonight, will you believe? Will you put your faith in Jesus? The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that he will save us. For with the heart we believe, with the mouth we confess, and salvation is given. And the Bible says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus and you want to make Jesus your Savior, I would ask you in this moment, right now, without hesitation, to just lift up your hand right where you are. God bless. I see a hand go up. I see a few hands going up around the room. The most important thing is that God sees that hand. As you're making a decision to put your faith in Jesus Christ, God is putting His Holy Spirit inside of you, even right now. And I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you, with the whole room, would you all just pray this with me so that no one feels like they're praying alone? Lord God, I believe what you did for me. I believe that you died. 
and that you rose and that you're returning. Would you save me? I put my trust in you. I put my life on you. Please give me your Holy Spirit. Please make me alive. I trust you for my salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys praise the Lord for what he does? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would never perish but have eternal life. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.